everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Two Drunk Fans. Tonight we have a kind of special guest with us, Chard Farley from Internet. (laughs) (laughs) It's only special because I actually know and really like both of you, despite (laughs) what I say in public about stuff. Chard was a big backer during our Kickstarter, so we had no choice but to include him in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right. At least we got thirty seconds of the show before reveal- revealing that. I uh, I I didn't think that was why we were having him on here, but okay. oh yeah, he also has good soccer opinions, and we both, you know, he's all right. No, I knew it was coming, Steph. Get it all out now, and then we can actually talk about soccer. All all the vitriol, everything that you've wanted to say to me, just go ahead and repeat that taxi cab diatribe because the world needs to hear that. I think I got all the vitriol out when I tried to straight up murder you at a Thorns game. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> so many scars from that. I was promised that you were not going to be brought back south over the border, and yet here you were, which I was excited about at first, but then, yeah. But then it's... Michelle Beto scored a header, and oh. I tried to choke you. We will always, we will always have that moment, and somebody deserved to be choked. Like somebody had to be sacrificed for that moment to happen. And okay, I'll, I'll sacrifice myself if that brings love to everybody else's world. I will do it. And plus, wow. like you've, you've been looking for a reason to do that. It might as well be a positive reason. Um. Well, Chard, what are you drinking? I just cracked open a Salzburger Stegel Radler, which is beer and grapefruit soda together. Gab, what are you drinking? I am drinking a very tall Jack Daniels and Coca-Cola in a hotel room. Ooh, where are you? I'm in San Francisco. Fancy pants. We are all in three very different places. We are, in our lives, too. Yeah, emotionally, professionally, geographically. (laughs) Yes. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And thus ends the comparison. What are you drinking, Steph? Uh, I had a lot before I came on this show. I had some Jack Daniels Tennessee honey whiskey, and I had like a Brooklyn lager, and I had a yingling, and I had some bourbon. It's been a weird night. (laughs) It's a lot of different voices uh, sounding off in your stomach right now. Yeah, but somehow I'm fine. Oh, I think we should let the listeners be the judge of that. Uh, Retweet this podcast if you think Steph is fine favorite if you think she's tanked so let's just jump right in first thing we're going to talk about tonight is jill ellis and her fancy new contract because we're stuck with her through 2019 apparently (sighs) gab and chard how do you guys feel about it i I, you saw it coming right so we are the naysayers or at least i am the naysayer that says i think there's better out there um, and then Jill Ellis goes and wins a fucking World Cup, not using the game plan. I mean, unless she was just trolling everyone who is a fan of the team um, up until that that China match. You know, she she won a World Cup. Um, she's gonna win the Coach of the Year award at the FIFA Balloon de blah 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 um, in January, and you know she's gonna receive a lot of awards and accolades. It's just whether or not you know. This is the first thing Jill Ellis has ever won. I still think there's a better coach out there. For example? Tom Cermani. <laughs> okay, realistically, someone who would come back to the United States. Are you talking about Pia? No, no, I don't think that's a better option. Yeah, I don't think so either. So I, I'm not quite picking up what you're putting down. What about Marin Minert? Oh. Oh, Chard, what do you think? 
Well, I think there are two better coaches in the NWSL. I would rather have Laura Harvey or Vlad Gladinovsky as the coach of the uh, women's national team. But it, it's weird to have a um, have a world championship team and not want to at least reward the coach through through a new contract. So I I think we knew this was coming, even if some of us still suspect that. Uh, maybe she's not the best coach in the world, even if we think have a higher opinion of her now than we did at the start of the World Cup. But I, I, I guess I lean towards what Gab is saying. This is the premier job in women's soccer. Do you have the premier coach in women's soccer? Because if you don't, then you should be able to argue that you can do better. And if your uh, organization always is preaching the standards are so high, nothing but the best, then it's a little bit weird that you're not upholding those same standards in what is probably the most important managerial position on your team. Yeah. And I, I think we've seen a lot of indicators over the last year and a half that Jill Ellis just isn't up to, up to the task. I'm going to be really intrigued. I mean, at this point, I think we could rename the TV show or the TV show. Yeah. Cause we're be- recording ourselves with video right now. We could re- rename the podcast to prove us wrong because well, I, I would love to be proven wrong and have Jill Ellis call in all of these young players, have U.S. soccer really pivot and start working on development and really start addressing some of the major issues that we all know this team and this organization has. But I, I think Jill Ellis is, is too far on the inside and it's just going to stick to the company line. I think that's something that comes up for me, too, in my mind. Jill was brought in because she was a continuity person. Uh, Tom didn't have the support of key elements of the program. Uh, Jill represented a point of continuity from the Pia Sundhaga era. And when they brought Tony Gustafson back in, that doubled down on that continuity. Over the next four years, we're not going to need continuity. The team is going to need anything but continuity. They're going to need the change that you're implying. And perhaps Jill Ellis can be that person. But the logic of bringing her in because of the current group that they have and retaining her because of the current group that they have doesn't hold once that current group fades away. Which is going to happen fairly soon. We've already, the process has already started. Box is gone. Holiday is gone. I mean, they'll be on the victory tour, but for all intents and purposes, they are gone. Excuse me, that's a cat. (laughs) I gotta kick him out. Schmidt Schmidt is really vocal tonight. Rampoon is going to be gone soon. Abby mm-hmm. might be gone soon. Oh, Who knows? She well, keeps making sounds about if I'm asked to play. I don't know if I could say no to that. Here's <laughs> here's the bet. Who's who's out first? Rampone or, or Abby? Rampone. Yeah, yeah, but really? Yeah, but really. But really. But really. Christy Rampone will retire first, I think. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if Christy Rampone is the head coach of Sky Blue FC this time next year. She's already got a, a a couple seasons of player coach under her uh, under her belt there. Yeah, so Jill's contract is pretty long term through 2019, possibly through 2020, and that's that represents a whole new cycle. And she said there was a press call, and she said um the na- the national team is not a place where players can come to develop. It's where they should come and thrive, like Julie Johnston. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're just using words differently. But I feel like Julie Johnston did come to the national team, and she needed some development. She still needs development. I, we saw her make some pretty big fuck-ups during the World Cup, which fortunately didn't cost us anything. But she still needs development. And 
there's this assumption that there's another place that players can go besides the national team where they can get that quote-unquote development before they quote-unquote thrive on the national team. But I don't think that's true. You're, there's only so much you can do on your NWL team. And what if you're on, you know, not the greatest team that doesn't really develop you? The national team might be the only place where you can come into your own and mature as a player. Well, and with all the camps and all of the time that they're actually spending together, you would hope that they're developing a pool and they're developing all of these young players. I mean, we saw, we kind of saw this before the World Cup before they named that roster where they actually did create some sort of some sort of competition to be on this team. I mean, the roster was what we were expecting. Um, mm-hmm. There was no real a competition. There was no real playing for, for your spot, but there is a point where you just have to say, okay, we need to bring the youth in so that we don't create a situation where everybody's just comfortable. I think Jill's comments really reflect um, really reflect a, a diversity of opinion that everybody has about the state of the NWSL right now. And like like Steph, um, the part that Steph read or remembered implies, people don't see the national team as a place where you can really develop talent. And like Steph said, where else are you going to go? The federation is basically requiring all the players to stay in the NWSL, but it's not really a place that players are going to develop at least p- players that are uh, inspired or pretty close to the national team, the senior team uh, getting regular call-ups because they're away so, in- so frequently. And when they do come back, it's pretty obvious that the level of play for most of these players is greatly diminished just because I, I don't think there's the attitude within the group that your club team is your primary responsibility. And so we see a lot of players performing below their best. Uh, I mean, I'll give it to Julie Johnson. I don't detect that in her, but most of the players, most of the uh, national team players, you can look around and go, yeah, I don't think you would be doing that as far as like their level of output for for the national team. She went on this St. Louis radio show where they asked her about that and she responded as though I were like a preteen asking her, where can players go to develop? She's like, just go to an environment that challenges you. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what I'm asking, but well, but but you're right. It's it's not what you're asking, but it also uh, talks a little bit to how much they actually mentioned going to Europe in that press call, and how players that go to Europe are still being scouted. Like Tony is going to be scouting in Switzerland and or Sweden and Germany because that is all of Europe, right? <laughs> yeah, that, sure. That, that is going to cover everything, Tony in Sweden and Tony in Germany, let alone, you know, nobody's paying attention to France or England or any of the other leagues that they have going on over there. But, I mean, that flies in the face of history. That flies in the face of what we know, which is U.S. soccer asked players to come back to the States. And it wasn't like a polite, like, ask. It was, uh, if you want a shot, you need to be here. You need to be playing in the NWSL because we're not going to be scouting you abroad. Which Jill Ellis disputes. Right. And it's just so insane when you look at the development that people like Kristen Press had in Europe. And she's obviously not the only one. You can look throughout the squad that went to, uh, went to Canada this summer, and there are a number of players that greatly benefited from their time in Europe. Uh-huh. And, and particularly with um, after the Olympics, you know, that three year gap between major tournaments 
why not let these players spend a couple years in Europe when it's not absolutely essential that you're finding the right players during those two years? I think the biggest issue when I talk to coaches is just the pure length of the NWSL season. And I think when we watch the NWSL, at least when I watch it, I don't feel like the quality of the league is lacking. I think it has a certain style that's different than the top leagues in Europe. But I don't think the overall quality, either in the talent or the game itself, is lacking. And I think you'll you'll hear people like Laura Harvey that have experienced both uh, both sides of the pond reiterate that. But the season is just so short for players here that it's very difficult, one, to be loyal to clubs or to have any kind of chemistry with your clubs, especially when you're being pulled away so often. But secondly, to get the kind of 10, 10 and a half month training that you get when you're in Europe and that you need to stay at your peak as a professional athlete. And I think the NWSL needs to start making strides towards that. I just don't see that happening anytime soon. And as a result, Europe is going to be a better option for these players that realistically don't even have the option to go to Europe if they want to be selected in the senior team. Yeah, you're kind of fucked. Like, either you go to Europe and develop as a player, but then the Federation and Jill ignore you, or you stay in the NWSL, you don't necessarily get, like, broaden your horizons or get the different kind of training or the length or quality of training that you need to develop, and you still don't get noticed by the Federation. So, good luck, motherfucker. Yeah, and then you hear the story of Lindsay Horan where it's become a not-so-open uh, not secret that she is considering coming back merely because she doesn't have any faith that no matter how well she does in France, that she will have a regular route into the national team. And that, again, is sad because I think I can't imagine her developing as well at the co- in college as she has in the environment that she chose. I think Lindsay Horan is probably the most high-profile American right now overseas that national team fans are kind of paying attention to. And if she can't get a look, then who the fuck else can? Right. And since the national team is where these players, it's what their whole career has been pointing towards. It's easy for some of us just to say, well, screw that, just go to Europe and cash in. Yeah, maybe even if you consider what they would make with the national team in a given year and then with their NWSL salary, they make a little bit more in Europe. But for these players, that's not worth giving up your dream. Uh, they don't dream of being a star in Champions League, as, as great as that competition is been or is getting they dream of playing in big tournaments for their country and to ask them to forego that dream over a few dollars or some principle i think that's too much to ask i think it's uh more pertinent for fans to put pressure on the federation to let these players have some reasonable choices with their career well like you were saying with um with jill she was saying one thing about development how how the national team environment isn't where players should be developed it's more about identifying how they can contribute to her vision or whatever the team concept is at a given time. I, I wonder if the there's another school of thought within the staff and within the federation that will eventually win out and either make a greater commitment to the NWSL that will allow the league to grow or allow these players to go to stronger environments where they can play and train for uh, 10 and a half months a year. It, those, those are all excellent questions. I'm still not told that Jill's a leader. Let alone, is she the leader that is going to be able to incite change? Like, how much of winning the World Cup was Jill? And how much of it was forced on her? Or circumstance or somebody else? Or how much of it was that the ball was already rolling? She's going to have four years to figure it out. And I, you know, how many years did she have at UCLA? 
uh, to to be to develop that program. And and yeah, that program made it to the tournament a number of times, but never won. And that program, as soon as she left, started winning championships. Maybe not as soon as she left, but now that she's no longer there, I mean, UCLA is is more powerhouse than it's ever been. It's a situation where, you know, I, I just think Jill is a cog in the wheel that U.S. soccer wants in the wheel. Well, like Char mm-hmm. pointed out, she's kind of brought in as a continuity coach. It seems like some feathers were ruffled under Tom, and she was brought in to soothe a couple of ruffled feathers and try to just get this team over the finish line. And now that she's signed a new contract and kind of we're at square one, we're at the beginning of something new, well, the Olympics, whatever, but, you know, now that the World Cup is over, we, we can start looking at other things, but will she? So, yeah, I think these next two or three years are going to be really critical in showing us whether she actually was kind of just a figurehead brought in to make people feel better, or if she can actually be a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's also interesting to think about what the world is going to look like in 2019. I think we saw in Canada that the U.S., based on talent alone, was probably going to make the semifinals. Maybe they got some breaks in their quadrant of the round of 16 bracket and it paved their way a little bit. But the U.S.'s biggest challenge was going to come with Germany or France in that final four. And it was going to be very difficult for a coach to ruin that. Now, once Jill got the team to that point, she made some changes that really mattered. There is an interesting debate as to what motivated those changes and how much Jill really made those changes or just kind of uh, was just riding a snowball that was already careening down a mountain. But when you think ahead to 2019, you have teams like Australia and the Netherlands and a number of teams that are going to be much stronger in 2019. The programs are growing. They have a huge depth of talent, and it's not going to be a free ride to the semifinals anymore. So now you're going from a point where a coach has to win you one game or two games. Um, I think we saw that the United States was vastly superior to Japan. So if you want to give Ellis credit, give Ellis credit for that Germany game to a point in 2019 where a coach might have to make the right decisions for three games. And that's a lot different. That's where the coin flips, eventually one of them might go against you if you do make it about coin flips. And the question is, is Jill going to just leave it to the talent and get in that coin flip situ- type of situation where we're going to let the players play out, or is she going to come up with something clever enough over the course of three games with talent that isn't going to be so far ahead of the field come 2019? It's a situation where we're really going to have to see Jill Ellis develop herself, um, I think, and I'm an naysayer. I don't think that <laughs> the senior team is where a coach should be developing. Hmm. A coach should come to the senior team and thrive? and not yeah, uh, develop yeah. well we just don't send enough coaches to europe that's the problem oh, all of our, tony, all of our coaches are back. developing at the end of usl and they're, they're developing in college you got to get into environment. you have to get in an environment where you can coach for 10 and a half months a year and it, it's just a shame the federation won't let our coaches go to europe i agree that i w- wouldn't mind seeing what vladko or harvey could do but laura harvey's never gonna leave well she's not gonna leave seattle for the foreseeable future because they're letting her have pretty free reign building something there and free to... free reign i see what uh, you uh, <laughs> and she seems to be enjoying it and i yeah. don't super know that vladko would want to leave fckc either of the two i could see andonofsky being more receptive to getting a national team job but he's not going to get that offer so. and i think these are the same things that a lot of people were saying during the last recruitment process it's like oh why would tom leave australia he's put in so much time there and the kids are coming through and the U.S. coaching job is the clearly best coaching job 
in world soccer, women's soccer. And when you get that call, you at least have to pause and think about it. And I, I don't know what Laura Harvey would say right now, but if Seattle wins a title this year and continues as good as they are, she might consider that her job is kind of done. And for somebody like Vladko, I, I don't know either. He has deep ties in that area, but he's he's a young guy. He I think he's more ambi- ambitious than he comes across. He's obviously very bright. He has the exact kind of player's first temperament that you would love to have on a national team where you're only getting the players for a certain amount of time, but there's a continuity, there's a consistency, there's a positivity. I think he'd be a great national team coach. But the other thing that I think we might want to consider, uh, and this would never happen, but if you're dealing with a, a world of scarce coaching candidates and most of your talent is coming from one league, is it really that bad to have a coach that also coaches in that league, coach your national team? I I mean, it's not ideal, but if it comes down to these, these people won't leave and, but they have this high knowledge level and we've seen how much success they, we've had, they've had with some of their players. Why not let them do both, especially because the NWSL only plays for a handful of months a year. When was the last time a Federation coach also coached a club team? Hmm. Well, you have to consider the unique circumstances here because also when was the last time a Federation was essentially hand in glove with the league, theoretically, theoretically USSF, is the fist inside the glove that is NWSL. Yes. USSF is fisting the NWSL. That's what we're getting at. Well, yeah. I'm, yeah. I think theoretically. It's a title. theoretical fisting. It's yeah. not a... We don't necessarily know that the fisting has actually occurred. Yeah, or, oh, the, or, or the frequency you, or intensity of it. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, I, I agree. It's a unique situation. It's a unique circumstance. I just... I worry about bandwidth. Where has Jill Ellis been for the last couple months? Last month. Well, look at probably taking probably taking some well deserved time off, right? Yeah, hopefully. Like consider Jurgen Klinsmann's responsibilities. Doesn't he have to do all? He wears a lot of hats for U.S. soccer, so I don't necessarily see that it would super be a burden for someone to coach club, especially if you know they don't schedule a lot of national team games during that time, which they shouldn't, right? Um, At least it will provide a, finally provide a disincentive to doing that. Yeah. Right? And then the other half of the year, they run the national team. And then, because they're within NWSL, it guarantees that they see the talent available there. So that's an interesting proposition. I just don't know that that, that should be the impediment to hiring somebody you really want. But I, I also just don't see them going that far outside of their kind of circle of trust so to speak i i don't think either of those two coaches are within that circle of trust but i i just have a lot of respect for those two coaches and it'd be so awesome if the federation did just recognize that these coaches are such great minds that we're going to bring them in and let them let let them dictate to our culture a little bit absorb what they feel like uh, needs to be done and learn some lessons from them rather than saying this is a static culture we have and you have to adjust to us I think that a that, lot of people that would, would be ag- fantastic. I think a lot of people would agree that U.S. soccer, especially on the women's side, definitely needs an injection of new culture, new faces, new thoughts and ideas. Uh, someone who isn't necessarily there to make veterans feel more comfortable with the transition, but is there to say, "It's a brave new world. Here are some ideas that you should consider." Mm-hmm. Well, they they need a Pia 2.0. I think the other thing not to, and this goes to the suitability of Jill for the next four years. I think the other thing not to underestimate is how many players within the current setup want the setup to actually change a little bit. 
a lot of people finally started talking about how Lauren Holiday was never truly happy with how she was played with the national team, and rightly so. Uh, but she's not the only person that goes to national team duty and feels like either she's being underutilized or the players aren't being pushed enough or just the culture uh, the culture caters to too many, too many isolated stars. And bringing in somebody that will change that up a little bit might – might actually in the long term be a better thing but then again that just puts us right back to where we were with tom sarmani so we've had these discussions before well it's not just change up i mean if we're talking about vlatko specifically look at the performances he's been able to get out of holiday and a-rod versus how they perform on the national team so you can see Uh, what happens when they have a coach who knows how to correctly utilize them versus a coach who's like well i have these really talented players but I already have a plan, so I'll just fit them in where I think that, like, I can hammer them in as best I can. And then if they don't perform, meh. Yeah, and it's not just them. You see people like Leanne Robinson and Erica Timrak, uh, Jen Buzkowski performing at national team levels for their club. And one of those players has, did not get a chance at all this last cycle. But when you saw Leanne Robinson and Erica Timrak go to the national team, it's like, okay, they kind of look like ordinary players now. And that's understandable. You can't be the same player in every situation. But it is remarkable how many players do seem so comfortable under Vladko. And maybe that's just me matching what the players say about him because he's he's very popular with his stars. And I, I think that's your resume. That's your LinkedIn profile. That is something that U.S. soccer should be tapping into is who's able to motivate players, not necessarily who's able to manage our superstars. Yeah, what happens when the next generation of superstars aren't as self-motivating as this one? Right. Or what happens when the next generation... Well, Gab and I have talked about this before, where we're worried that there might be a certain culture, culture of entitlement going on now, because it's not necessarily a conscious thing, but things are mm-hmm. much better now if you're a national team player than they ever were before especially based on the power of their current CBA. So people who come into the national team setup now and have no idea what it was like before, you know, 2011 might be used to a certain way of doing things, which which makes it hard to change the culture of the team. There's an entrenched culture now. And once again, Rory Dames straight up called this out where he was like, a lot of older players don't like the league because it means there's a lot of up and coming players who can challenge them for their positions. And by definition, that is why we have a league. It's incredibly frustrating to think the older players are not 100% bought in because they feel like their career is at jeopardy. When in in reality, hey, guess what? You're a professional athlete. There's always going to be somebody younger, faster, and potentially more talented than you. That's why you need to stay on your A game and you can't slot. Well, two, two things come to mind for me when you're talking about this. One, the problem that you were just talking about, Gab, would be solved if players were held more accountable for staying at a top level during the NWSL season and coaches looked at their performance in the NWSL as an indicator as how they performed for the national team. And I think the forwards in this last tournament were a really good indication where the people who weren't scoring goals in the NWSL didn't all of a sudden start scoring goals at the World Cup. And intuitively, that makes sense. We just kind of take it for granted that the Sydney LaRue's of the world are different players for the national team. They uh-huh. are, but part of that is because they're not held accountable for their play in the NWSL. So if Jill Ellis really wants to look at the NWSL as the place where players are really going to improve, she has to demand that of them and not just look at it as like, okay, you're going to be gone in the NWSL a couple months, and when you come back, we'll, we'll see how you are. She has to be interacting with these players, 
and their coaches on a regular basis, just as Jurgen Klinsmann does, to see where they are, to see how they're progressing. And if they don't make the progress that they're supposed to, they don't get called in. And that never happens with the national team right now. You never see somebody drop for form on club level. Whereas every place else in the world, it's a regular thing. It's an expectation that you will stay at the top level. But the second, the other thing, and it feeds into it, is what you were saying about the CBA. It's getting so expensive. Well, this is what everybody says, at least. It's getting so expensive to expand the player pool that it's becoming prohibitive because of the, because of the CBA that's been negotiated. And so it's an interesting problem that we want these players to be compensated. We want these players to get the dollars that they're get their share of the dollars that are generating for the federation, but that then creates a disincentive for the federation to expand expand the player pool and introduce more players to those salaries and those benefits. Would you then argue that then it becomes more important than ever to cycle out older players if we're gonna try and balance um, their dollar value versus the size of the player pool? I would argue that, but I would also argue that the Federation should just suck it up and do what's best for the program. And if it's going to cost you some more money, well, look at how much more money the the team is generating for the Federation from 07 to 11, from 11 to 15. It's not unreasonable to say, yeah, there's a reason why these players are demanding this money, and we can't let that influence how we structure the team because how we structured the team before is how we got to the point where we are able to give them more money. Like you can't use success as a reason not to try to be successful. Right. You you can't use it you can't use success as a reason to put you know handcuffs on yourselves or a cap on the amount of money that you're spending. Let's apply this logic to the men's side. The men's side is not a winning side when it comes to major international tournaments uh, that Cup. go outside <clears throat> of CONCACAF, right? But the U.S. soccer doesn't have any issue just continuing to funnel money into those programs because they are generating a lot of revenue. Now, on the mm. women's side, they're generating more and more and more revenue every single year. And, yeah, probably the same players are benefiting from that, from from the increased uh, CBA and, and what their base salaries probably are year after year. But at some point, you're absolutely right, Chart. Like, the U.S. soccer just has to suck it up and say, this is developmental money. Um, you know, most major companies have, have a research uh, and an R&D program. Like, U.S. soccer just needs to be spending more money on R&D uh, of the youth in in both college and, you know, the, the rookies in the NWSL. Call them into camps, put them through the system. Mm-hmm. Let, the, let the vets know you can't get comfortable. Because if you get comfortable and we drop you, there goes that paycheck. I think you're right in comparing it kind of on a macro level to a business because when a business expands, you can't expect to have everything be in this kind of homeostasis while you're expanding. You have to expect that there's risk, there's risk of loss, that you're going to have to invest maybe more than you make back at the beginning, and that you're expanding because you think the expansion is going to pay off in a future investment. So the expansion of the current player pool, which, Gab, you've pointed out multiple times, is only about... 25 maybe 30 players to a pool that's conceivably 35 to 40 players that's mm-hmm. going to be painful growth but it's necessary and it yeah it you got to spend money to make money and the team the team has already proved their value u.s soccer on this victory tour this celebration series whatever we want to call it is is selling tickets in major 
football stadiums, stadiums that seat 60 plus or 60,000 plus people. And, you know, that's going to be a major money grab for U.S. soccer. So it's not that this team isn't popular. It's not that this team can't get the support. It's it's that U.S. soccer needs to step up to the plate and start putting real money into who's going to be out there in 2019. With the 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 stadiums that you brought up and we've seen that they're already getting pre-sales of like 40,000 plus tickets in some of these big venues. You kind of been, which, which is amazing by the way, that yeah. that much selling so quickly. Uh, it seems like such a step up from even four years ago. It's well, the growth is incredible. Yeah. Consider right. Like in, in four years ago, we were shocked that Providence park sold out and that's 20, 21,000 people. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But remember 2010, during the uh, the farewell tour before they went to the World Cup, they were barely getting five six thousand people at games, and they were right. about to leave for the World Cup. But through because they've you know started winning again, and America loves winners, and I think women's soccer is taking on increased cultural cachet in the United States. There's a lot of factors. Now we're expecting it's expected that a big national team game against a good opponent should get twenty thousand plus. Should yeah, that's huge. It should. It should get 20,000 plus. It should be on national television. It should have a large AO representation. The quality of the broadcast should be good. And as we heard about over the last three years, when us included moaned a lot about the quality of performance, the team should be expected to perform to a certain level too. And all of those are great expectations because nobody cared about these games before. It's This is great. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The team should play at that level of expectation. And I think we've all, we could all probably remember games over the last year where we're like, oh my God, what the fuck is this? And it's, it's part Jill Ellis experimenting with lineup. It's part somebody was just having a bad day. But at the same time, it's like, you guys are a senior squad. You guys are world champions. Like, there shouldn't be bad days. If you're having a bad day, you're not on the pitch. Well, or at least those bad days should be an excuse to let the Crystal Duns of the world prove themselves before they have a small window before the World Cup to to make or break their, their World Cup. Well, speaking of yep. Crystal Dunn and the big stadiums, I think it's a good time to talk about the intersection between U.S. soccer and NWSL in terms of this victory tour. Because, yes, they're selling out huge venues, but these venues are out in the middle of places that aren't helpful to NWSL or I think necessarily <laughs> women's soccer in the broader scheme. And the argument I keep hearing is, well, it's nice for these fans who aren't in, who typically don't get national team games to be able to see the team live. It's a thank you to them. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, on the one hand, that is nice and it kind of helps build a team's brand a little bit. But in the long term, this one game that has like 40,000 tickets sold in the middle of a place that's never going to see NWSL expansion in the long term, like a year from now, is that going to yield any tangible benefits? Right. And I, I think we've we've made this this point quite a few times ever since they've like started announcing where these where these matches are going to be. But I think our message has gotten through to to the soccer overlords at U.S. soccer well, they because did we're, we're starting to see synergy. We saw, well, my question is, so the thing is, we got a game in Seattle. That's huge. The last time they had a national team game in Seattle was like 2002, one, something like that. Two. I think it was two. Yeah, it was over a decade ago. So that's big. And it's in Seattle, which we've seen is a pretty 
like healthy growing market for women's soccer the rain are really building something there so i'm glad that at least for one game i was proven wrong that yeah they will have a game in an nwsl territory and the rain are doing this cool thing where if you put down i, I don't know if it's a deposit or if you actually buy season tickets with them for 2016 you get first bite at this national team game that's yeah, a great that's, promotion. that's great that's great that they're even thinking on that level. I mean, whether even if like that doesn't work at all, the fact that there is that level of coordination and there is that attempt to link the products together, that's I think that's great. There's nothing bad that can come from that. Yeah, the linking, because now in people's minds, it's like buying rain equals buying national team. The, the league and the national team should be cross-wired in people's minds so that when you think of one, it naturally invokes the other. And this is a great step forward in doing that. I just wonder who was the impetus behind this plan. Was it U.S. soccer, or did the rain go, hey, guys, if you're going to be here, why don't we do this cool thing? That seems like I'm... the more likely scenario. That's yes. the type of scenarios you hear about before, at least. I mean, so that's six games announced already. It's two against, what, Costa Rica, and then two against Australia, and two against Brazil. And out of those six games, still, only one is in an NWSL territory. Well, and yeah. only, and two of those are being dubbed or have been called celebration games where it's going to be the exact same roster as was at the world cup where at that press conference we were talking about earlier jill ellis was like oh yeah you know we're going to use this as a time to test out and and try out new players uh for the olympics because the olympics are right around the corner well the first two matches against costa rica are going to be the world cup it's going to be the World Cup squad. Kind but we'll see okay. some starting lineup switch up. We'll see some players switch up. But those first two matches are going to be the World Cup squad. I also wonder how much the Federation is going to go, hey, Jill, you know the people who made waves during the World Cup, like when Kelly O'Hara came on and she scored that big goal, like that ninja kit goal? You remember that one? <laughs> like, we want you to make sure that people who had big moments in the World Cup get some screen time. So plan your roster accordingly. And I don't even think that's that unreasonable. That to me just means you need to schedule more games at the end of the year where you really are preparing to to round out your roster that you're going to take into qualifying and really identify people that might make the the smaller squad that's going to go to the Olympics. I mean, it's it's a smaller team. It's not like they need to introduce anybody. They're going to have to make some tough decisions. A couple of people who aren't retiring aren't going to be able to go to Rio. But at the same time, I think people like us, it would be really difficult if somebody that's playing as well as Crystal Dunn, who is having an MVP level season and was right there, has no option to play her way into the team. Yeah, I'm kind of fine with the first two games being celebration games because, you know, you're trying to ride that goodwill wave as long as possible, blah, blah, blah. But the other eight games, definitely. Crystal Dunn, the Crystal Dunns of the league need to have some avenue to kind of force their way in through the sheer force of their talent. Because if they can't force their way in through sheer force of talent, then what the fuck is America for? <laughs> America's not for the Crystal Duns of the world. No, think... the, the Crystal Duns of the world have to work much harder than yeah. others. But you know what the U.S. does have? Crippling debt and a struggling, shrinking middle class. CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers. Oh, boy. Hey. We're, host we're hosting this year. 
Yeah. Next year. Next year, I guess. And you know what? We saw during the Olympics that counting out some of the smaller teams like Costa Rica is just not a smart thing to do anymore. Well, we only get to send... CONCACAF's only sending two to the Olympics, all right? Yeah, so qualifiers are going to be cutthroat. Yeah. Us and Canada doesn't get a free ride this time. No. I mean, if I had to bet, I would say USA and Canada, but you don't know. Tournaments are weird things. I mean, 2011 wasn't so far ago, and obviously the U.S. had to take the long way into that World Cup. And like you said, teams like Costa Rica are more competitive, but I'm not so sure the U.S. has any realistic worry uh, in qualifying. I definitely think Canada probably does, though. Um, I'm like you, Steph. I would definitely bet on Canada, but wouldn't be so shocked out of my pants if they were upset by Costa Rica or Mexico. Depending on the roster, I- and uh, they might have two or three friendlies before qualifying, depending on those go, yeah, my shock level is going to vary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I want to see what Canada does next. Like, how does how does Herdman bounce back? What sort of what sort of game plan does he have? You know, what which players on their roster are going to retire that haven't already announced it? Or which players need to not be relied upon going forward? I mean... Melissa Tancredi got a lot of playing time this summer, and it was just because he didn't have any other options. And there were a couple of other areas where you could make the same argument. Um, But then again, a team that has Kadisha Buchanan, Aaron McLeod, Christine Sinclair in CONCACAF is going to be difficult to keep out of the Olympics. How long do you guys think it's going to take Canada to see a return on the investment they made into soccer going into this World Cup? I don't know, because I don't know how much of the Pan Ams you watched, but they sent a youth squad. Mm -hmm. And they didn't win, but they did send a youth squad playing against full senior teams. And they Mm -hmm. were competitive. They were competitive. uh, I think some people underperformed, but there were a lot of promising youth players in that squad. I mean, foremost among them, obviously, Kadisha Buchanan. But they Canada looks good on the goalkeeper front for at least another cycle. Um... They've got some promising forwards coming through. Uh, and then in Jesse Fleming's class, they have you know some midfielders. I think maybe where they're going to be worried is defense, to find someone to pair permanently with Kadisha Buchanan. But mm-hmm. their, their youth program, the U20 and U23 level, I would say there's four or five good players coming through with some development on the national team. Mm-hmm. Um, who could make the squad as competitive as they've been in the past when they're when they've been at their peak? And I think that John Herdman's doing a good job of getting the younger talent placed in programs, whether it be at club level or in college, that are step steps up from where players were before. I think, or at least there's more players go- more players going to places where they'll be able to develop quicker, and there'll be a greater depth. So. I almost think 2019, we should be able to see that difference. I think the biggest question will just be what kind of Christine Sinclair and what kind of Aaron McLeod will Canada have in uh, in 2019? The Christine Sinclair they'll have in 2019 will probably still be Christine Sinclair because she's pretty much said she intends to try one more time in 2019. By then, yes, she will be slower and her role will have probably drastically changed from even what it was in 2015. But I don't necessarily know that at that time they'll have anyone who will still be on her level. Absolutely not. I, I If she wants to start, then she'll start. But even over these last two or three years with the NWSL, the NBA, we've talked 
I say we as if I'm on this podcast every week. <laughs> but, uh, amongst us, we have talked about the fact that the NWSL hasn't exactly been the rosiest of places for Christine Sinclair. Um, her her goal rate has actually dropped at international level over the last few years. And we saw in Canada that she wasn't the same potent threat that she was at the Olympics, even though she still, in my opinion, had played very, very well. She's turning into somebody that has to be more of a facilitator. I think part of that is because defenses can concentrate on her so much because players like Melissa Tancredi aren't as good anymore. Diana Matheson wasn't really healthy. Um, but come 2019, that regression is going to continue to the point where is she's just going to be like some version of Kelly Smith just kicking the ball around the park at that point and with limited mobility. I, I'm not sure. She seems to take pretty good care of herself. She's not nearly as injury prone as Kelly Smith, knock on wood. She hasn't really had a big major injury that's required, you know, more than a month off to recover. So I think right. in 2019, yes, yeah, she'll definitely be more of a facilitator. She won't be that player that you look for on the run to be like to split the defense, run on and and shoot on on the goalkeeper as much. And I think she'll definitely be playing in a reduced. She won't be playing full nineties. She might come in as a sub or she might start and then go out in the fifty something minute. But even when Kelly Smith was kind of in that, you could tell it was it was almost time to be over phase. She was right. still a great difference maker just through her yep. skill, her vision, and her experience. Even if she never left the center circle of the field, she would at least have one game-changing moment per game. And I think Christine Sinclair will always be like that. She just but... sees it in a different way, and and that's and that's the opportunity that she has. She just she's like got a beautiful mind, and she's out on the pitch, and she just she sees the like angles and the probability and the and the success rates and everything. Oh and, and you, you know what I mean? It's like that scene where she oh, yeah, just no, like sees absolutely. all the things happening. And so she's like, all right, I'll do this. Like soccer's so you, easy. Imagining Christine Sinclair drawing on windows right now. Basically. Yeah. Basically. And, and, and talking to her like imaginary friends. Yeah. The question has never been, does Christine, can she see the field the same way she, like she, of course she does. The, the question has always been, can Canada produce someone else to take advantage of her vision? And yeah, um, sometimes Melissa Tancredi was able to do that when she was on, you know, she hasn't been able to do that recently. I think. Remember, they... remember that time Tancredi did like a behind the back overhead, almost bicycle pass to sink. Yeah. She just popped it over her head. Cause she knew Christine Sinclair was running on that. Oh my gosh. That was other, awesome. That awareness of each other is critical, but the current crop of forwards that the U S I mean, that Canada has with Leon or jo- Jonel Foligno, um, mm-hmm. it's just not happening. So I think they're going to yeah. have to look towards their U23s and U20s to see if they can find someone to be Christine Sinclair's strike partner at long last. Who knows? And get Merritt Paulson to sign them for the Thorns and let that Here we go. develop. Here oh we go. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. Right? Right? Right, Richard? Right. No, I'm just looking right. at the clock and seeing how long it took us to get here. Great restraint on your part. Mine? Yeah. No, Mine? you're Mine? 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 Dibs? Dibs? <laughs> We're almost at the end of the podcast. I'm, I'm almost done with my pint glass of whiskey. Yeah, smoke mm-hmm. them if you got them. So we're here at the end. Is there anything you guys wanted to bring up to kind of close out the episode? I would just like to say I think everyone who goes to NWSL games should respect each other. <laughs> And be nice, especially if you're visiting oh somebody else's home. And be aware of personal space. And that sometimes 
high fives and punching <laughs> is not welcome. <laughs> or choking. Or choking is not welcome. Whatever, um, you're but, alive. But just be, but be aware of the way you respond to celebratory or um, agonizing emotions and and be nice. Be you're aware. being really nice. You can just say hooliganism of any form is dumb. And hooligan LARPing <laughs> is dumber than hooliganism. Hooliganism and hooligan LARPing is dumb. I know. Dumb. Okay, so here's what I want to here's one thing I want to bring up tonight. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really I think this is really interesting. Trying to figure out which coaches in the NWSL, based on what we've seen so far this year, are likely to start with their teams next year. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, I know this touches touches a little bit of a nerve with you, Steph. Um, Boston, people have been talking about Boston for weeks, so obviously throw that in there. Um, it got out earlier this year that Paul Riley's contract doesn't extend past this year with Portland. So that'll be a very, a very high-profile position that opens up. And then I do wonder how much longer Sky Blue is going to stick with uh, Jim Gabara, particularly with um, Christy Rampone, potentially a replacement in waiting. So you know who who else I would love to see on on that list is who? Aaron Lines. You imagine a world where the Flash exists and Aaron Lines is not coaching it? No, no, I don't. But why, I why don't to. you? This, I mean, this might be something for another podcast. But why don't you like Aaron? Uh, he has a reasonable track record of success. I know that Carly Lloyd brought up some issues, but I think we, you know, online we kind of talked it out that Carly sounded a little bit uh, bitter. Just dis- yeah, disproportionate was the word I kept yeah. using. Yeah, I, I, I just, I find it very hard uh, to stomach how far the Flash have fallen. And hmm. so from where, though? Like, I, 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 guess, I guess I'm living in this world where NWSL coaches don't really seem to have a bottoming out. Okay. Unless you're Lisa Cole. Like, Lisa Cole, that was her name, right? Yeah. Yep. Lisa Cole got fired Well, what about Spirit quickly. Coach before Mark Parsons? Right. And, and so it's just one of those things where I'm like, oh, my God, like if I had the record Western New York Flash has for two seasons and I lost all of the players I've lost. And, yeah, it's a rebuilding season and everything like that. Like I would be looking at coaching. Maybe. I think that's fair. But I think I think you might be exaggerating this year a bit because it's only been in the last week that they've really started to fade from playoff contention, which for a year that was a drastic rebuild for them you can argue was a really good coaching job. Well, they did a good job of getting points while other teams were short-staffed. Yeah, which I think is a a legitimate thing, though, from a a coaching position, especially with the the roster that they had to build because they lost everybody. They did what they could with what they had, which is, I think, in marked contrast to the quote-unquote rebuilding that is supposed to be going on in Boston. The Flash's rebuilding actually built something. Mm-hmm. It's at... it's building something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look I look at that roster, and I I do see places where they can improve, but I also see like a good core of players that they can take into this offseason and say, if we get two draft picks and we make a couple of good trades, we'll have a really solid eleven that can at least push teams like Houston and whatever teams like Washington look like next year, we can at least push those teams for the last playoff spots or the perpetual mess that is Portland. We can push those teams for a playoff spot. Um, and I think we saw we saw that through the first few months of this season. But while I agree with you, last year was more disappointing than I, I think anybody should have expected. I think the first and third years were good coaching jobs by him. You're talking me down. From the ledge. <laughs> yeah. Aaron Lyons no longer doesn't make the cut. Are you backing You're... away from the line? 
I am. I am backing away from the line. If Gab, if you're anti-Western New York for one day, and it's this day, I completely understand. Aww. I'm not. I am not anti-Western New York. Becky Edwards plays for Western New York. But roses don't grow in upstate New York. Correct. Okay, so here are the coaches who I think we can all agree are safe: Harvey, Ananoski, Waldrum, Dames, Lines, yeah. uh, Mark Parsons. So that leaves Correct. three other teams: Paul Riley because his contract's up. Uh, Gabara, mm-hmm. because not necessarily greatest track record with Sky Blue FC, and you've got Christy Rampone on the horizon, and the fucking Boston Breakers. Yeah, and any potential expansion teams that they they will keep saying they were going to announce, but if they do initially, eventually announce one, that'll be another coaching job available. Yeah. Right. Ooh, maybe Paul Riley will go to that one. Maybe oh, there'll boy. be a Philadelphia expansion team. Probably no. not, but um, maybe there'll maybe be a... There- Maybe or maybe be a Long Island, Orlando. maybe NY, NYCFC will will go, come into the league. That's a that's a possibility. If yeah, NY, maybe. If NYCFC maybe it's Orlando. comes into the league, though, don't you see them partnering with Sky Blue FC instead of starting a whole new team? Uh, okay, so here's my here's my scenario for how this plays out with Sky Blue. Purely speculation. This is quote analysis, like as many quotes as you can imagine filling up a page. Like the word analysis is here, and the rest of the 140 characters are quotes. This is the scenario I think happens with Sky Blue FC. I don't see that ownership group ever giving up control of the team. And I see a series of negotiations that were similar to the ones with Red Bull after the first year. I think the league eventually says, we have other strong ownership groups in this market, and we are going to, unfortunately, compromise Sky Blue by giving Red Bull or NYCFC a team. And that will end up cannibalizing Sky Blue to the point that they'll have to drop down out of the first division. I think that is the most likely scenario with Sky Blue, that they just never come to an agreement where that ownership group is willing to give over control to an organization that would rightfully want to control a team that's going to be branded as their team, um, use most of their resources, etc. I mean, I could see it based on what we know of the the failed Red Bulls deal. So, I mean, I think that's where the situation where, like, if people are pointing to struggling franchises, they usually point to Sky Blue for different reasons. Sky Blue, Boston, Western New York, Chicago. And then some people will throw Kansas City in there, mostly because I think they just tune into YouTube and, and see that they don't have huge crowds because of the facility or that they don't like the turf on the field. But Western New York is not going anywhere. Boston has very deep roots. Um, Chicago seems to have a long-term plan. And Sky Blue probably could stick around at their current level, but the problem is I think eventually they will get cannibalized, whether it's by a Philadelphia team or a New York team. But this is the thing we talked about two years ago, even when these teams came around and we saw that this league was like an interesting combination of new ownership groups, uh, between not just like Portland's, but like Predmore in Seattle and what the Kansas City team was doing there. And a lot of old older teams that have been through leagues before and had kind of these consistent presences in various leagues. And even at that point, once we saw like how successful Portland was going to be and um, how, how successful out of the gate, at least on the field, FC Kansas City was, you immediately think of, okay, if this league does survive, what does NWSL 2.0 look like? And how are these old style organizations going to survive in that league? And we're quickly getting to the point where NWSL 2.0 has to be a reality, at least in planning, if not necessarily in action. If Sky Blue FC does die, because some other franchise swoops in and cannibalizes their audience. I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing, because that just yeah. means that someone else has found the winning formula in that area that Sky Blue wasn't able to do. So if Sky Blue 
ends up going out as a franchise, uh, ends up going out as a club from NWSL because somebody else succeeded. That's not the same as them failing and just leaving NWSL and then there's this gap. Um, It's it's not like they're being sold to Magic Jack. (laughs) Let us not invoke that Mm. horror show. Or or it's not like they're self-relegating like Chicago did in last year of the previous league. That would be progress for a league if you essentially traded one franchise for a stronger one. It's not ideal progress, but it is progress. NWSL 2.0, in which that, yeah, that point is rapidly approaching. If we're not in phase 2.0 by the time the 2016 Olympics are over, then I think we need to reevaluate the league's strategy and U.S. soccer strategy. Yeah, and in that way, I think 2017 is going to be a really crucial year because you have to have a vision that's going to be able to carry the league through the next cycle. And that means correcting the errors that you've been willing to live with over this period, because it was all about surviving until the now. Well, you're, you're entering another phase of survival at that point. Yeah. And it's going to be reasonable to ask is, you know, is NY is a uh, Western New York's deep, um, deep pockets. Are they deep enough for the next, um, next incarnation of the league is, are the struggles that Boston now having, um, are they going to be able to, I mean, Boston has this core of support that's not going to go away, but are they going to be able to establish enough credibility with the way that they're going to grow with the league? And with FC Casey, are you going to be able to solve your facilities issues, basically? 2017, I see, is that's the next round of funding. Like, if you're a venture capital situation. Oh, that's a good analogy. Like, 2017 is the time when you should have a presentation that says, okay, in our first phase, this is what we did. And this is how right. we are now ready for phase two. And phase two is going to require, theoretically, more funding. And this is how we're going to justify needing more money. Although I think you can kind of just point to the league and say, needs more money. That's your justification. Right. Yeah. But, you know, but it, on a numbers but, level, say, this is the money we need. This is how we're going to use it. And that's how we're going to create phase two to prepare us for 3.0, which is, tech, which is theoretically the phase where some of the teams are becoming like more than just the thorns are profitable. Right. It'd be interesting at that point after 2016, if they basically said, you know, these, these teams that don't have a long-term plan, we're just going to replace them and approach some of our people that we've been talking to for years. And, you know, you get two or three of the teams that I just listed phased out and you get, they get replaced with like NYCFC and a Toronto team. And these teams that are partnered with big ownership groups. And unfortunately, or, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, probably linked with M- MLS teams. And right. you just say, look, in this in this next phase, we are planning for a long term here. We've already survived longer than any other, any other league, but we are no longer going to be allocating player resources and uh, administrative resources to these teams that have not progressed in l- these four years. So you're being replaced with these new teams. I mean, teams have failed in MLS. They've lost franchises, and the league is still going. Yep. So I think if NWSL can kind of follow the model where where teams fail, but they're replaced with stronger teams, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's not the case like with WPS where the league like eventually shrank down to just five teams. And you're eventually going to need teams that can't afford to maintain staff that can play longer schedules that can't afford to play, pay players higher higher wages without being so subsidized by U.S. soccer, and that can't afford to lose money, significant money in the short term, to do the kind of in-market investments that will grow the team for the long term. And, and the unfortunate realities of, of the league are that not 
all of those the teams in the league right now have the luxury to be able to throw throw around money like that. Guys, we should start a team. Yeah, well, let's do it. But gotta... where would we base it though? Uh, well, if I want enough money to have my own team, I would just buy the Breakers. And then move them to Portland. No, I, I'm I'm down with us trying to unlock the Boston market. I think it's there. I think you know people have been talking about it for years. Either what how the Breakers are doing things or how they're marketing things. I would like us to have our crack at uh, crack on unlocking that that box. All right, let's attempt to open the box, the Boston box, Pandora's box. <laughs> I mean, okay. let's let's break into the box. Okay, okay. We'll we'll talk about Boston. I'll just unload all my feelings about Boston on you in the next Do 5 it. minutes because we've seen the World Cup bump has lasted a little bit longer than it did last time. They they saw crowds steadily increase until the last two maybe three games were sellouts and the last game was standing is barely standing room only. And nice. this despite having no World Cup stars except for Alyssa Nair, essentially, in terms of name recognition. Yes, we did have, like, Hafina and mm. um, theoretically, like, Bianca Sierra, but it, it was Alyssa Nair. That's it. But we still managed to suck people in. And they weren't necessarily coming because, you know, Alex Morgan's in town. We had a sellout crowd when we were playing, uh, I think it was Chicago and The Spirit, and... Yeah, you've got names like Allie Krieger and Kristen Press and, and Ashlyn Harris, but it's mm. not like if Abby Wambach is coming to town, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like in WPS, they would be like, Alex Morgan is coming to town, and people would just lose their shit. So, yeah, it's the potential is there. And Boston's a great sports town, and when you combine that with the increased visibility of women's soccer, I think it could happen, even though this place is so fucking saturated with sports. People are tired of, you know, deflated balls, and the season doesn't necessarily cross <laughs> over with some other major sports, so it's kind of in a good place. So, it could happen. We just need a few more top players, and a little more winning, and yeah. I think that comes by replacing the fucking coach! I completely agree with that. I also think that upper management needs to be reevaluated because they made these decisions to trade off some of these players that are talented players and um i don't think they held out and got enough for those players even if they made the decision that they should go how the fuck does boston give up leanne sanderson to seattle for peanuts for a second round trade pick well we didn't i don't think we really ever had leanne sanderson we had her rights. Yes. right 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 but, but I, they I, had I, no I, leverage I, in that I, deal her rights were going to expire at some point it was essentially a case of we have to unload this let's just get whatever we can for and yes admittedly I think we could have gotten more, but in this situation, I think they were like, we have to unload this, and who's looking to buy? Mm -hmm. It was Seattle and Portland, and whatever Laura Harvey offered with this second-round trade pick, maybe it was better than what Portland was offering, because otherwise you'd think they would deal directly with Portland instead of letting Laura Harvey swoop in and be the middleman and get, you know... It, it, it just blows my mind. ...working her sorcery. What? I think that just essentially functioned as a three-team trade, that Seattle had like the level of draft pick that worked for Leanne Sanderson, and they couldn't quite get it to work with Portland. I don't know this for sure, but I think that Seattle always knew that they were going to deal Sanderson to Portland, and Boston always knew that too. It's just Seattle had like the right level of pick to get her out of there, and Portland had the right level of picks to work with Seattle directly. Um, 
I don't know. I think it's just weird how they announced it because it seemed like what in another league would just have been announced as a three-team trade. I think Boston's trading and drafting has shown that coaching and management don't quite have Mm -hmm. the right head for it. I mean, look at all our draftees from this year. And at first I was so optimistic about them. And I was a fool because a lot of that optimism was based on preseason, even though I knew. I knew preseason doesn't mean shit. I knew. They also got off to a good start in the actual season, too, yeah, Steph, in your Yeah, defense. that too. But we had like five draftees, and out of all of them, we only had room to sign one, and we picked Verdoya. And I thought I was pretty up on her, but Verdoya has had virtually no time this season. She's played with the reserves, mm-hmm. but she has not played for the senior team that much. She's subbed on here and there. And hasn't really yeah. done anything. Meanwhile, Jamia Fields, who we dropped, has gone to Western New York, has seen a lot more time for them, and arguably had a lot more impact for them. Whereas in yeah. in Boston, we needed a Jamia Fields before we ever signed Kaya Simon. We needed her mm-hmm. because we were dropping points left and right during the World Cup when we needed another goal scorer who could work with Stephanie McCaffrey and Christy Mewis. And I just think that our record and our drafting and you know our trades have all kind of come together in this wibbly-wobbly ball of evidence that says coaching ha- coach has to go. Does the coach make the draft picks for Boston? Theoretically, yes. Although, okay. first year, um, you could conceive that Tom Durkin being so new, not just to the team, but to the women's game itself, that he had, he had a lot of help from both Lee Billier, the general manager, and Cat Whitehill. Mm-hmm. But by the second season, you know, he should know his stuff. Even going back to WPS... Boston was a team that never quite performed to its talent level in in WPS. And now, I mean, I think they are performing to their talent level now. But I'm not sure you could, could say that over the last two years. I don't know. It just seems something like cultural there. It seems like something where they kind of take for granted that they are the show in that market. And that they're going to be able to market to people and their decisions about coming to games are going to be independent of the quality of the team that they put on the field. Like they're going to market to, to young kids. They're going to market to people who are just going to come for the experience, not necessarily the quality of the team. And if that is what is going on there, I think that is not the right way to approach women's soccer at this point in time. Well, I think there's two factors. One is because the team has such deep roots, they're able to get a certain level of attendance no matter what. Look at the right. team's shittiness this season. Our attendance never dropped to like sky blue levels. There was yep. still a certain base level of attendance you can expect. So at that point, ownership is like, we don't care. And then the mm-hmm. second thing is Boston has a really strong academy system. And you have to think that a lot of money is being made in that academy system because, as we know, youth soccer in the United States, especially when you have a strong academy, is a giant cash cow. So I think that there's enough stability in audiences and money that it would take a really severe shakeup for ownership to go, you got to get rid of this guy. It sounds like some of those, I don't know the exact number, whenever I think of Boston, I always think there are 1,200 people in Boston that are going to go to these games, no matter what, no matter where they are, they have a strong core of support. And it might be fewer or less than 1,200, but it's a significant number. And like you said, you're never going to see attendance drop to the worst levels in the league. And it's probably going to take some something involving that core support where that core support kind of goes, where a large portion of that core support goes, you know what, I just don't feel like supporting this team if they're not really committed to to improving the product. And you can't, year after year, make an excuse for why you're tra- trading 
your best players and then turn around to your fans and say, we have an idea of how we're going to win going forward. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't work that way. I have a lot more to say about the breakers, but we're running long. So I'm just going to write it up in an article later. Thanks for coming on the show, Chard. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you again, uh, even though it hasn't been that long, but it's good to talk to Gab too. It hasn't <laughs> been that long with us either, but I haven't, I haven't seen Gab in a couple of days and I miss her. It has been a couple of days. I'll, I'll see you again soon, buddy. We missed each other on Sunday. We were close to seeing each other on Sunday. We're very close. Yeah. When uh, your team we, got a very big win. They did. Oh, my God. We're, we're on two wins not, going no. in, going going into Kansas oh City we tomorrow. We don't need Steph, to dwell I, on that. We didn't talk <sighs> about this stuff, but that midweek win for the for Portland, that was the worst. Boston was the worst I've seen a team play this year. Oh, my like, God. Like, they were just so inept. They were they were inept and tired. It was a lethal combination. Yeah. yeah. And against a team that now seems to realize it has to start getting three points instead of one. Yeah. Thanks a lot for bringing that up. I regret ever meeting you. I regret <laughs> you know, I just, ever meeting Gab as well. It's it's midnight your time. I figure you're going to go to sleep soon, and I figure that would be the perfect seed for your nightmares tonight. Welcome to your nightmare. Welcome to your nightmare. You know what, though? <laughs> I am not one of those people who tends to dream about like the last couple hours of whatever I thought about. My brain <laughs> is super random, and it could like pick up on some shit that happened to me a year ago. Or create something entirely new. So, joke's on you, motherfuckers. I would expect nothing less from you. I would be disappointed so, if you were so susceptible to suggestion. So what you're telling me is, in about a year and a half, you're going to have history. <laughs> I'm going to wake up in a cold sweat and be like, God damn it, Gavin Jordan. Oh, it's going to be March in. next year. March next year, she's going to wait. she's going to go to sleep and have a dream. That the season is right around the corner, and she's going to wake up and realize, yes, another Boston breaker breaker season is here. At yes. that point, I'm going to wait until it's like 2 a.m. your time, and even though it'll be 5 a.m. my time, I'll just call you and wake you up and be like, "This is your payback." Just okay, turn fair. turn your phone on Do Not Disturb chart when you go to sleep, and then that won't bother you every day for I the would, next two years. I like the idea of just turning to my phone and saying, "Do Not Disturb Chard." Well, this yep. has been a delightful way to end the evening. Goodbye forever. 